Welcome to the HMP Governance Lab podcast. I'm Scott Greer, and today I'm going to discuss the electoral process in the world and in the United States and in the sphere of public health advocacy with Professor Holly Jarman. So let's start at the top with a nice simple question such as, what kind of a political regime needs an electoral process? Because we all have got to admit that apart from a few political junkies, most of us don't really enjoy getting caught up in election campaigns. I'm not sure that I always enjoy getting caught up in election campaigns, and I do think of myself as a political junkie. But to to back up here, I think what we're trying to talk about is um, give you guys a little bit of a comparative perspective on how countries around the world uh, organize their elections and so we can step back a bit from the circus that is the US election and try to understand in particular some of the core characteristics of what a liberal democracy is. Right. So we, we talk about the liberal democratic model as a very common organization or way of organizing government uh, around the world and uh, it's become very popular, right? Uh, and liberal democracies require elections. Um, but for those elections to actually function and for the system of liberal democracy to function, there have to be certain characteristics and things that happen. And so I wanted to give you some all a sense of what these are what are these things that liberal democracies require if they are to be healthy and to thrive because we're facing a, a time in the US where our democracy is not looking so good in certain ways. So the first thing on my list, I'm laughing as I read this, is liberal democracies require a functional state. Um, and what I mean by that is the state has to actually be able capable of holding an election. They have to be organized enough and have enough capacity to actually uh, count votes, solicit votes, run campaigns, uh, mobilize various groups and, and count it all and tally it all at the end and produce a result. So there's a minimum floor for state capacity that's necessary for any liberal democracy to exist. So the second thing, though, is a little bit more ambitious. So we talk about this phrase a lot uh, in comparative politics and also in the specific field of um, election watching, the idea of free and fair elections. So free and fair elections that are recognized as such and are broadly accepted as legitimate is just a, com a fundamental component of a liberal democracy. And so free in the sense that candidates can stand uh, from a range of different positions. Uh, people are free to cast their votes without fear of violence against them for not doing so. Um, free in the sense that there's some freedom of public speech in that uh, everybody should be able to express their views in a non-violent way. Um, and then fair elections in terms of the procedures involved. So are votes counted fairly? Uh, is there corruption involved? Is there um, are there attempts to um, prevent votes being counted or um, prevent the um, election officials from carrying out their duties in a fair way? Is uh, are votes that are counted recognised in the result? And so, in a number of countries, we see election observers being employed to try to. Um, 
from other places to try to see if the process is in fact free and fair. Now, this produces a lot of rules which don't make sense until you think about the ways in which free and fair could be impinged. For example, in a lot of states, it's not legal to take a photograph of, let alone tweet out, your completed ballot. Why is that? It's because they legislators realized that people were giving voters money to vote, so straightforward electoral bribery, and they needed some sort of a proof. So the proof was that you would take a photograph of your ballot, and then you would show that person and they'd pay you. So now, that's one of the reasons you get the little sticker, is because otherwise people would take photographs of their ballot for the best of intentions. Well, if all you want to do is show that you voted, you get a little sticker. And if you're actually, in many states, tweeting out a picture of your completed ballot, you could probably be breaking a law. A law that doesn't make sense until you think about all the different ways people have thought of to interfere with free and fair elections over the years. Right. So liberal democracies require a functional state with a minimum level of capacity, and they require free and fair elections that are broadly accepted as legitimate. Um, Apart from that, they need to have a realistic chance that power will alternate. So here we're talking about opposing parties. There has to be more than one option, basically, in the election. And these options have to be realistic. And uh, everybody needs to be um, believe that there is a realistic chance that one party will be kicked out and the other party will be installed. So obviously political systems can have more than two parties, but there has to be at least two choices um, in that context. And the, the idea that uh, a democracy is only a democracy if power can pass from one person, one administration to another peacefully uh, without, through a, a process that is agreed upon by the parties. And this is magical. The people with all the power give up the power without a struggle. That's really impressive. And you can see why democracies are hard to establish and hard to sustain. Because if I have the men with guns on my side, I might not hand over command of them to somebody whom I probably, by the end of a campaign, absolutely detest. Part of the basis on which you have this loser's consent and victor's consent is simply the conviction that your rights are protected. It's the liberal and liberal democracy. If I lose the election, I can go home, campaign for the next election, enjoy the protection of the rule of law, not get frivolous tax audits, not have my supporters' economic interests be damaged. So there's a whole web of rules in which victors essentially promise not to weaponize the state that they've picked up in their election, and the losers accept the promise from the victors that means that they leave the protection of the White House and go out and become private citizens again. This is really magical, but if you frame it that way, why would I give up command of the U.S. federal executive? Then you understand the extent to which there's a promise on both sides being made. Right. So an essential component of democracy is protection of citizens' rights under the rule of law. And so they're not operating, when they're participating in the election, they're not operating under the assumption that there will be recriminations in the form of um, like smearing their reputation, uh, violence, potentially incarceration, or um, other negative consequences like the economic consequences that you mentioned. So Everybody involved in the election 
needs to be operating under the assumption that um, these this kind of recrimination is not going to happen if they lose. Um, and when the the governing party steps out of power, that they're not going to immediately be um, violently abused or, or locked up. So then the next feature is um, really has a lot of um, valence in the context of the US, which is constraints on the ability of the majority to its, uh, impose its will against a minority. So again, those with opposing views, not just the electoral candidates, can express those views without fear of punishment and losers in the election don't get shot or incarcerated or otherwise punished. So that's quite high level, but it's really important to remember that the key thing about democracy is this level of consent and the extent to which it depends on a society in which citizens really can have any kind of an informed take on what their interests are and how they can represent them. So the final feature of a liberal democracy is a range of things that support the exchange of political views, therefore. So some examples of that might include uh, a free press where journalists are free to report on different stories without recrimination. Uh, and again, without those consequences that could range from um, smearing their reputation and blackmail through to incarceration or threats of violence against their person. Um, and so the idea that it then is that the free press promotes an exchange of political views, which is really the essential core compact of a liberal democracy. Um, another potential feature that supports exchange of views is a, a mobilized or active and engaged civil society where um, across that society, people with different viewpoints are engaged in politics and debate, um, but engaged in such a way that it does not devolve into violence. So given this list of requirements in order to preserve the magic of a peaceful transition of power after a free or fair election. How's it looking globally? Right. So um, in, within political science, we have uh, a subfield which focuses on comparative politics. And comparative politics looks at how different countries um, compare uh, in terms of their political systems. Um, and there's a, a part of comparative politics that looks at democracies and tries to figure out how are democracies doing because liberal democracy is such a common form of government but also because there's so much variation in the quality of democracy amongst those countries. So unfortunately I can say um, across virtually all established democracies political scientists in recent years have been observing what we would characterize as a, a hollowing out of democracy which um, is basically a number of these important components of a liberal democracy have been somewhat undermined by um, societal changes, cultural changes, and technological change. So um, I want to just point to three things that I think are really important for us to know about as, as health advocates who care about um, political outcomes and their effects on health. So the first one is a decline in political parties uh, in many countries as significant forces. So we, we would describe a political party as an organization that aggregates interests. So they play a really important role in a society because they bring people together around particular viewpoints. So they aggregate 
different people's views and shape that into an agenda essentially and then they run for election based in some in many cases on that agenda or or certain ideologically related elements of that agenda and so um political parties and other interest aggregation organizations, because you can include trade unions in this category, um, have actually been declining in membership in a number of countries and um, not really performing that interest aggregation role in quite the same way. So this is important because it means uh, big changes in society and how governments relate to the population and some really different um, expectations in terms of what a party is going to do when it's in government. A lot of political systems that have um, strongly established political parties, in years past, the political party will promise to do a bunch of things in government and then uh, can be judged by the public based on whether or not they do those things. Um, The we're seeing those promises break down essentially and more parties running on um, sort of uh, policy-free platforms that are more based on um, emotional appeal and and broad ideological appeal. The 2016, sorry, 2020 Republican platform actually didn't exist. They just didn't pass one. Now, American party platforms historically are pretty much ignored and many different presidential candidates have said they didn't even bother to read it. But it was kind of a moment in the evolution of American politics when the Republicans just decided to skip a platform and instead affirm their support for Donald Trump. Right. And so they're definitely um, reaffirming their support in the person and the uh, character of that person rather than um, necessarily anything to do with the, the policies that they might support. Um, So a second issue here, thing here that political scientists have noticed is huge changes in media markets that are really affecting the availability of accurate information and analysis. So we've really witnessed in recent years the breakdown in um, traditional models of journalism where people will be career journalists attached to a single single media outlet um, and will be trained in that regard. And that had formally given them a a degree of protection, essentially, uh, in terms of their employment and potentially better labor conditions overall. Uh, And what we've seen is a breakdown, uh, collapse in the print media, especially. It's led to a breakdown in the vast shrinkage in the number of people who are uh, career journalists. And so we're seeing more people um, engage in journalism basically as uh, in terms of consulting for various media outlets and selling stories to those outlets uh, and content. Um, And obviously the big changes in social media platforms, web platforms that emulate those social media platforms um, and the the very fast pace of um, the news cycle as well as um, big consolidation amongst corporate media outlets. So they're providing the whole, the same news um, at not a very clear level of um, either quality journalism or local specificity to wide media markets. Um, And so that is affecting the availability of accurate information uh, and good journalism. And there's also been a rise in attacks on the media and um, claims about partisanship of journalism and reporting. And looking at media economies, 
Local media in particular has been destroyed, and the agent of its destruction, it varies by name, but in the United States, it's Craigslist. Because Craigslist means that you don't need classifieds, which were easily the most lucrative thing in the life of a newspaper. And secondarily, once you get into the death spiral of publishing a worse quality product with fewer reporters generating less information, then you basically only get advertisers who recognize that you have a sort of legacy electorate, legacy electorate, legacy market, which in turn means that they start to become targets for private equity firms that basically figure they'll strip out the last bit of money and then let the company die, which is how the United States has lost something on the order of 20,000 journalists in the last decade. So we've got a decline in political parties and interest aggregation, a decline in professional journalism and a real, real change in the structure of the industry. Um, and then the third thing I want to pay attention to is a rise in populism. So populism is um, a way of describing parties as well as political leaders that tend to be nationalist or very ethnocentric. They tend to be authoritarian and they prefer to support their arguments to appealing uh, to, to what they see as maybe common sense of the people, the people as defined by them, um, rather than elite knowledge or science, which is very important for us a lot uh, over here in public health and health systems research. Um, and so populist parties have been um, doing increasingly well in a number of political systems. And a number of parties on the centre-right have actually moved rightwards in response to populist claims in a number of countries. So we've seen kind of populists doing well in their own right in some places, but also conservative parties or, or parties on the right of the political spectrum responding to populist claims and in fact incorporating some of those claims within their platforms. Is this a good time to talk about the United States? Oh, yes, absolutely. So, Americans, first fun fact, you don't have an affirmative right to vote. The world is full of countries, many of them less democratic than the United States, whose constitutions say that you as a citizen have a right to vote. The United States does not have a federal constitutional affirmative right to vote. What it has is a number of amendments, the Reconstruction Amendments passed after the Civil War, in particular which eliminate grounds for, on which states can deny you the vote. So that's really weird, right? <clears throat> a lot of countries don't have that. Bear in mind that the American Constitution is, by the standards of constitutions, really old. Okay, so there's a number of things in the U.S. Constitution that are characteristic of the 17th or mid 19th, 18th or mid-19th centuries, but which just in the world's run of constitutions have fallen out of fashion, often for good reason. So what the United States has, in terms of the basic right to vote, is you don't really have a right to vote in the federal constitution, but insofar as you have a right to vote, it can't be abridged, for example, on the grounds of race. States often do have an affirmative right to vote. Now, this produces all sorts of garbled stuff because states actually run the elections and they certify victors and they certify the electoral colleges because states do it according to state law and state constitutional law. But because of the Reconstruction Amendments and the Constitution, the federal courts claim oversight. This produces all sorts of bizarre things, not all of which are good for the right to vote. For example, 
there's four justices, possibly five now, on the Supreme Court who actually say that because the Constitution says state legislatures decide how elections shall be run, state constitutional courts cannot override state legislatures. So Pennsylvania's constitutional court said for U.S. Supreme Court judges has no right to override gerrymandering and ballot restrictions passed by the legislature, right? That's the kind of thing you're seeing where you have a federal versus state argument and it's not clear who actually gets to clarify what's going on. So that's a good question, actually. How do other countries handle districting? Because I feel like the U.S. is so impressively gerrymandered that it's quite an outlier, potentially. It's extraordinarily simple. Have a nonpartisan, and it's easy to design ways to insulate the body from partisanship, agency whose job it is, if you have districts, to draw the districts and then to administer elections. This is a bit like universal health care access. Everybody else has figured out how to do it. So when I'm in Europe, I have detailed conversations about whether the British or the French model is better. I'll vote for the British. The Electoral Commission is far superior to the delegated bit of the French Interior Ministry. But those are little micro differences. What the U.S. does, which is give it to the 50 states, many of which give it to local governments, under the supervision of, in most states, an elected politician, the Secretary of State, is absolutely bananas. And it leads to obvious democratic malfunctions, such as Georgia, in which in 2018, the Secretary of State, while running for governor, purged the voting rolls of people who he thought would vote against him, and then won. It's really hard to claim that Georgia had a free and fair election in 2018, when the man running the election and deciding who could vote also was running in that election. Right. A core principle of liberal democracy should be that those people running for election don't decide the rules of the election. They shouldn't be able to decide on the, by themselves the, the jurisdictions, the districts. They shouldn't be able to decide the rules. You need to have an impartial body that does that and um, insists on compliance. It's an old joke about communism that the party has dissolved the people and is convening a new one. Well, East Germany, where the joke was originally made, is gone, but we still got Georgia. So the U.S. in turn is unique among rich countries and, in fact, unique among countries that have elections in the decentralization, the legal ambiguity, and the lack of an affirmative right to vote in our elections, as well as the fact that, like most of our local governments, they're really underfunded. There's plenty of solutions. The fact that they're not on the agenda is striking. We're also unique in the amount of money in politics. Legal money. There's plenty of cases of all sorts of dark money and underhanded tactics in jurisdictions around the world. But even before Citizens United, the sheer quantity of legal, often untraceable, we call it dark money, that pours into American elections is absolutely unbelievable. And the only saving grace is that a lot of the time it seems to be well past the point of diminishing marginal returns, that everybody from the small donor to the billionaire is actually wasting their money. Imagine if we took a, a big chunk of the money that was just spent in the, the election this year and, I don't know, funded healthcare with it, potentially? That's the problem, is healthcare is even more expensive than politics. So American <laughs> politics is really cheap by the standards of the favoritism you can buy, but, and it's really cheap compared to, say, what a product launch for a major company would cost or the capital expenditures of the healthcare industry. 
but it's really expensive in the sense that it freezes out a whole lot of people who don't have either a billionaire or manage to take flight on social media with small donors. It's not a great situation. And broadly, the way you restrict it is simply by restricting the things you can spend money on. The big money goes into television. All you do is ban paid TV ads, and the importance of money in politics diminishes considerably. That's the secret weapon. But we're in the America we have today. And this is a class about advocacy. So, Holly, professional advocates often refer to an election year. What do they mean by this, and what are the challenges associated with advocacy in an election year? Oh my goodness, that was a pivot. Uh, Okay, so... um... We wanted to give you something that balances out the doom and gloom here with um, some practical ways of thinking about elections, especially if you're in uh, a health role where you're trying to advocate for particular positions. And so an election year is not an insurmountable challenge if you are an advocate. It just requires some planning. And so these are some of the real uh, pieces of advice that advocates give around Um, what you should do when it's an election year. And this is quite important in the US context because um, our election campaigns last a long time. A lot of other countries don't have quote-unquote election year. They have an election period that lasts maybe eight weeks. Um, And so we have um, far fewer restrictions on what the election season looks like in America. And so... Um, a lot of the time because we have fixed term elections as well uh, we have this very long election cycle and so the whole election year is quite important Um, so the thing to know uh, and if you remember nothing else from this part of the podcast remember this non-profit organizations which are those classified as 501c3 under the u.s tax code if you're not american Don't worry about it too much. Just remember the number. Uh, We have a tax code that classifies organizations quite specifically into these different categories. Um, Those organizations, the 501c3s, cannot be openly partisan. So they can't support or oppose candidates for office. Um, So that's very important, actually, at the University of Michigan. So I am not going to go on my University of Michigan uh, Twitter account and say uh, vote for Joe Biden because that would be uh, really violating um, the advice that we get from the university around advocacy. Um, So the 501c4 organizations and labor unions can be partisan as long as it's not their primary activity. So understanding the kind of organization that you're working for and how um, the tax code and then related election law constrains you uh, in terms of displaying partisan support is quite important for your organization. The the broader things to be aware of, too, are that um, many organizations are going to be making demands on the candidates at once and you're going to be one voice amongst many. So do think about how you can plan to be prepared um, during election season for uh, and establish re- relationships in advance so that you're not starting a new campaign or trying to forge new relationships when the election campaign is hotting up. Because um, 
schedules are going to be busier for elected representatives in office. They're going to be traveling around all over the place. Um, and so you're not necessarily guaranteed to get the amount of time with any of these people that you would um, normally during a non-election year. Um, this also timing wise leads to unpredictable legislative timetables. So in order to assist representatives' chances of re-election, some bills are going to be sidelined. Other bills are going to be kind of rushed through so um, months before the election so that then while the election campaign is going on, the representative can claim, oh, I've done this for you, my constituents. So it kind of, the election cycle has an effect on, it kind of distorts the legislative timetable. And understanding that is kind of important as an advocate. Um, not only will the candidates be experiencing a lot of different demands, but the public and your supporters, uh, the supporters of your group, your members, your stakeholders uh, are going to be um, receiving multiple requests for all kinds of action. And so, uh, you know, I'm sure you're all a bit familiar at this point in the cycle with election fatigue. Um, and so can you still convince them to donate, to write in, to show up, to take actions um, and to vote in, in ways that you in the ways that you advise uh, for candidates at this point in time? So you need to think about how to break through that election fatigue and reach them in in um, new and interesting ways. And I want to underline what Holly said at the beginning, which is you cannot speak for the University of Michigan. The president's office has a small number of delegated people who, after a long process, can speak for the university. But you can't speak for it. You can't speak on behalf of it. You can speak as a student at the university, but that only means that you personally have, among your many other assets, some engagement with the University of Michigan. Everybody gets in big trouble if you put a University of Michigan letterhead on something that you try to use for advocacy or partisan purposes, or if you claim that you're speaking on behalf of the University of Michigan. You're not, unless you're the university president. So, yeah, a do or some do's and don't in, don'ts in that regard. Um, do act as a private individual, right? You can um, write a letter and then also say, I am a public health student. That's not, uh, that's part of your expertise. That's quite distinct from saying, as a student at the University of Michigan, speaking on behalf of my class at the University of Michigan, you know, you can't claim to make um, statements on behalf of the university. But my advice to you would be form your own student group, form a group. Um, students in the past have formed groups where they've been advocating around a particular issue. They form their own group, given themselves a name, and they have coordinated their actions um, in with no relationship to the university but just under that group name um in order to conduct an effective advocacy campaign and that's worked very well so how do we tackle the various challenges that are involved in trying to have any impact in this enormous ongoing campaign that is american politics how do you do advocacy? So having suffered through the 2020 election cycle, I'm sure you're raring to go for the next one, um, but uh, it, it'll be coming up sooner than you think. And the key things to think about here are really um, in terms of preparation, be ready to go. You should be, once the election really hots up, ready to go. You should know who your champions are on your issue and who your allies are. 
you should have already crafted talking points um, and have some materials on hand with the idea that we don't quite know which way the election debate is going to go at any one point. Sometimes um, issues just become uh, very pertinent to the election campaign and your issue might be one of them. Given that you're probably advocating in health, um, it's very likely that some of your issues will become incredibly pertinent to the campaign. So you need to think about how can you pounce on opportunities as they arise to insert your issues and your positions and your arguments into the debate at short notice. So develop relationships, the best ones that you can prior to election season, but have those in your pocket and develop knowledge of the champions, issues, talking points um, and all of the background that you need so that you have this on hand. Um, another thing to think about during election season is to anticipate alternative scenarios. So what will you do if your issue gets talked about by candidates during an important debate or a televised debate or a rally? Um, how are you going to respond to that? How are you going to reach out to your members? How are you going to reach out to your allies? How are you going to reach out to the media? Um, or the alternative scenario, uh, unlucky you, your issue gets completely ignored in the campaign debate and the campaign veers off in another direction. How will you respond then? What kinds of messages will you send out? Um, and through all of this, it's important to leverage any funding and development opportunities for your organization. So at the same time, um, you're paying attention to messaging and communications. You're also thinking about how can you raise money um, that supports the issues and the work that you do in advocacy. Um, and in general, the advice from advocates is don't be afraid to send out multiple messages that are tailored and tailored to your supporters. Um, it might take some time for your message to be noticed amongst the deluge of election uh, coverage. Most importantly, in all of this, do educate your volunteers or employees or, or members of your organization about what they can and cannot do under the tax code and under applicable election laws like that good background level of knowledge about what is a, uh, easy to do and good to do uh, and what uh, are things to stay away from is going to be very important to your success that is a great set of marching orders and america increasingly is in a permanent campaign so bearing this in mind all the time, because you never know when somebody's going to be out to get you and you can be undone by one volunteer who's got the wrong idea. So educate them and educate them in how to operate in this environment of a perpetual campaign, because campaigns are when politicians go out and basically interview the electorate. But it's my hope, too, that you'll be able to take some of this on board, understand how the system works, but then also be able to actually advocate to change it. Um, I think a, an understanding of how different democracies work um, can help you open your eyes essentially to uh, different possibilities that you could put into your advocacy. Different, We don't have to organize elections this way and other countries do it differently. And I think we should try to learn from them and do better. Amen. This has been a podcast from the HMP Governance Lab. 
If you're interested in learning more about our research, come and find us at hmpgovernancelab.org or follow us on Twitter at hmpgovlab. <laughs>